Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of That Food Podcast. I'm Stu and I'm joined as always by my good friend Matt. Matt, how are you doing this week? Well, I received a tweet yesterday from world-renowned cooking goddess, Nigella Lawson. Uh, So... I'm buzzing, mate, actually, to be honest with you. It's, uh, so she let me know that my uh, butterscotch pots were fabulous, in her words, uh, which made my day. So, yeah, I'm feeling good. So we've spoken about these butterscotch uh, pots on the pod uh, for the last few weeks, and I know you've been planning to make them for a while. First of all, how were the butterscotch pots? Tasty. So obviously we've established that we're big fans of Angel Delight, uh, butterscotch boys, um <laughs> but uh, and so you kind of get used to that taste which is obviously very sweet and no denying i love it uh the butterscotch pots were different they were a bit more smoky in taste um kind of richer as well not as sweet um however still very very nice uh and really fun to make as well so um yeah you touched on food alchemy um, in the first week when we had our little chat um, about you know what brought us to this point uh, of making a food podcast and you, you mentioned food alchemy and this really was food alchemy so there's a point where it get, uh, you add um, double cream to uh, I think it's uh, butter and sugar um, and when you pour the double cream into the pot or into the pan it bubbles up uh, ferociously it really goes for it it's like sitting in a um, if you remember a chemistry lesson uh, back in the school days it's something like that and it's just astounding to kind of see this bubble up and then settle back down and kind of uh, then form a different um, like co- consistency um, so yeah to watch that happen and then kind of see it thicken up into this wonderful uh, butterscotch flavor uh, cream uh, it's delicious so yeah really fun to make really simple to make as well um, it's one of those things that obviously we used to buy in, the, in a packet um, like many things uh, but to actually have a go at making it itself was, you know, it felt good and it tasted good. What was your margin for error in this? Because obviously if you're mixing all this stuff in to make butterscotch, I can imagine it's not as, as complex, I assume, as making caramel, whereas you may set up, you really do have to start again. Was there any point when preparing these pots you thought, oh, this is the difficult part? There was, uh, yeah, there was a bit where it's the... Let me get this right. It's when you then mix in the cream with the butter, sugar, um, and the recipe, which is a Nigella Lawson recipe, if you want to go check it out, um, warns you to keep it moving, um, but don't be too over the top so it doesn't get that smoky taste. So there's a fine line there, because if you let it sit on the pan, obviously it's going to burn um, and you're going to completely ruin it. Uh, but at the same time, you don't want to overdo the swirling so it doesn't pick up the smoky taste as well. So, yeah, there was a fine line there. But to be honest with you, it is, yeah, really straightforward to make, actually. Um, I'm kind of surprised by how easy it was. But, yeah, tasted good. And was it quite a long process? It No, it wasn't really. No, it's, it's fine. Once you gather, like all things, really, once you've got your ingredients together, um, it's, it's, yeah, in and out job done um i suppose the longest part really was letting it cool down again because it's we had it um after it had been in the fridge for 20 minutes or so and it's still quite warm so it had a kind of a weird i thought anyway amy quite liked it but it had a kind of a weird uh, consistency so we had uh, two pots each so we had one pot that evening and then uh, uh, another pot the following night 
uh, where it had cooled down. And for my taste and my preference, it was a bit nicer once it cooled properly. It kind of formed uh, a bit thick in consistency as well, which um, yeah, made it taste nicer, I thought. And the, the final question, what is better, Nigella's Butterscotch or Butterscotch Angel Delight? <laughs> oh, don't make me choose, you. <laughs> <laughs> I love Angel Delight. I love Nigella. Um, I think <laughs> tradition always wins out. You kind of love what you grew up with, don't you? Um, but the experience of making it yourself was... was uh, interesting and uh it kind of gave me a, a sense of satisfaction afterwards um <laughs> i'm gonna say angel delight original uh powdered sachet version to be honest after all that <laughs> so when nigella comes on she's gonna ha- you're gonna have big heat with her for basically saying that the packet is better than her homemade one no but it's again- not like that it's not like that honestly <laughs> it's please nigella it's not like yeah. that <laughs> but um but yeah, I, but I think it's interesting, as you said, because one of the things we'll, we'll cover as we go through sort of the weeks and months of this podcast is obviously, and we'll get to it again with the recipe of the week, uh, which you chose uh, last week, which was Ken Hon's uh, chow mein. The ability to make something at home rather than from packet, know what's in that, um, know what's in, as any ingredients in there, so you are aware of everything. Because whilst I... You know, it's a Nigella recipe, so it's going to be decadent. It's going to be indulgent. But at least you know the sugar content, what's in there, whereas opposed to an Angel Delight creation of um, butterscotch dessert, I guarantee people aren't going to really look through what's in that powder to make it until you pour in that milk. So it's quite interesting from that standpoint. But you've also had another discovery this week. So obviously, if you've been following our Twitter, at That Food Podcast, uh, Matt's been quite busy in the kitchen this week, so you did a bit of a double header yesterday with uh, my favourite mm, ingredient, chickpeas. <laughs> yeah, so this is uh, another good example of how uh, cooking is alchemy. Um, so I made a chickpea and squash soup yesterday, and with the chickpeas, it comes in a tin, or ones I use come in a can, um, and there's a liquid in that can, um, which has actually got a technical name, is aquafaba. Um, and that aquafaba can actually be used as a um, substitute for egg whites. Um, so I actually, going back to my Bosch book, uh, which we featured on our, our first episode, um, there is a recipe in there for chocolate mousse using this aquafaba, the liquid from the uh, chickpea can. And I sort of had that in the back of my mind to, at some point, have a go at it. Um, so I used the liquid um, to uh, whip up like you would with a, um egg white. Um, so it starts off with this almost like a very viscous, rather dull-looking liquid. And as you start to whisk, and you do need an electric whisk for this one, um, hand whisking just won't cut it, um, it starts to then form into these white fluffy clouds, much like egg white does. Um, again, it's alchemy, you know, so, you know, um, to watch that process happen and then you add melted chocolate in with um, sugar, uh, vanilla extract as well. And again, super simple, really, you know, and as you mentioned, which is something that we're really getting into at the moment, actually, uh, when you talk about comparing, you know, packets to uh, making it at home, I'm starting to get quite obsessed with looking at what ingredients go into it. 
um, from making it from scratch point of view, um, as opposed to in packets, which sometimes you have no idea what's in it because a lot of the uh, ingredients are in another language almost. It's like chemical X, Y, and Z, um, which you don't necessarily understand. But to be able to see uh, pure ingredients go in and form something from scratch in front of your own eyes, again, alchemy, um, it's just brilliant to see and brilliant to do. Um, I think also, like, something I wish I mentioned on the first podcast is that it's very therapeutic as well. Like for me, cooking, especially at the moment where we have a lot of downtime, um, is therapy for me. Uh, so to be able to stand in the kitchen and gather the ingredients and then put them together to make something wonderful is therapeutic and, you know, takes my mind off other things as well. So you can just escape for, you know, half an hour, an hour, however long it takes. Um, and then also you get a tasty treat at the end. But um, I understand that you had a bit of a kitchen nightmare with uh, chickpeas in the past, Stu. Did you want to tell the listener about that? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't really call it a kitchen nightmare. It's one of those things that I think everyone has probably experienced in a lifetime. Now, I used to be quite a big fan of chickpeas. I would eat them in curries, casseroles, whatever you, you could get. If they're in wraps or anything for some veg or vegan replacement stuff, great. I'm all for, or was all for, a chickpea. Then, during, would have been, I think it was either, I know it was 2018, well, I've been doing this, 2017 or 2018, me and wife decide, me and my wife Leanne decided to follow um, like an, an eating plan, a diet book called the GI plan, which is very much sort of quinoa and, and, and chickpea centric as well. And it was okay, it wasn't too bad. But unfortunately, during part of this diet, I'd picked up a bug. Um, so obviously, one evening I was unwell, and during the day I had eaten a chickpea and quinoa stew. And then ever since then, just the smell of cooking quinoa or the thought of eating just normal chickpeas, it's just, I can't do it. And it, I remember that it was the same thing as like brown sauce when I was five years old. I remember I'd had too much on chips and I was ill that evening. And I wouldn't touch it. It was like, oh, brown sauce, disgusting. It, um, and now, if you have a bacon sandwich, it's always got to be brown sauce on a bacon sandwich. And so I think it's like a 10-year cycle now. So maybe around sort of 2026, 20, 2027, 20, I'll be able to re bring chickpeas back in. But it's really odd. There's like certain food types that you associate, even though it's got absolutely nothing to do with me getting ill. But because it was like, well, I ate that during the day and now I just can't get it out of my mind. And it's, it's odd that certain foods... Because I've spoken to other people's cases, oh yeah, I've had that with, like my wife's the same thing with Heinz tomato soup. There's nothing wrong with tomato soup, but because she's had a bad experience of it whilst being ill, it's a case of, well, I can't touch tomato soup. Yeah, I had a uh, similar experience with mushrooms, which is why I have a uh, slight distrust of them that now. Uh, when I was a uh, young a, a child, I had a bad experience with mushrooms and it made me ill. And I've always associated that with, with mushrooms, obviously. Um, it may not have been the mushrooms, it might have been something completely different, but I still have that association. I've got better with it now. Obviously, our first dish involved mushrooms quite heavily, um, but the flavour was covered with uh, various different things. Um, so, yeah, I completely understand where you're coming from there. Um, so, in a moment, I guess we're going to get to food news, but I do have just uh, a slight quibble to raise with you this <laughs> week's show. Far away. I love the weekly quibble. <laughs> so uh, you might remember me telling you about trying to feed the um, 
leftover fish to Mac the cat from the haddock risotto. Yes. Yeah. So, well, he, as you know, he didn't eat it. So uh, the following morning, Amy took the bag containing the fish uh, skin along, uh, along with some other household waste to our bins. Now, Stu, you know where we live. So you know that our bins are located quite far away from the house. Yes, yes. a long drive. Yes, 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 yes. Um, so sometimes we'll walk the bins up, but for whatever reason on this occasion, Amy decided to drive them up in the car. I, I assume there's you know, a bit of rubbish to take up, so easier to put in the car than carry it. I mean, I don't know what I was doing at this point. I could have helped, assumably. <laughs> <laughs> now, somehow, all the rubbish put in the bins without problem, apart from this one particular bag. Can you guess which bag that might have been, Stu? I, I, it seems so obvious to suggest it's the one with the fish skin in it. <laughs> it was the one with the fish skin, of course it was. So um, that's right, the one with the fish skin. So for obvious reasons, we're not leaving the house very often at the moment, um, which meant that four days later, when we went to go out in the car, um, can you imagine what was uh, greeting us as we opened the car door? The, the aroma of a car that a cat would love to drive. <laughs> Stinky, rotten fish smell. Uh, so we were driving around on that day in the freezing cold with the back windows down to get some <laughs> air into the car, uh, with it not really making too much difference. Um, Amy um, was actually going to do a big shop in Tesco's that day, so I went along with, with her for the drive. But as a sensible human being, I stayed in the car, so I sat there with <laughs> the fish smell resonating around the car um, whilst Amy's in Tesco's. She picked up a, uh, a bottle of air freshener spray and one of those little you know, gel air fresheners as well that you can yeah. put into houses. We, we got one of those for the car. Um, so, so we're spraying it and got this uh, gel air freshener in there, uh, trying to reduce some of the stink. Um, now, the funny bit is really that Amy was trying to blame Mac the cat <laughs> because he didn't, <laughs> he didn't eat the uh, fish skin. So obviously it was his fault. So uh, uh, in jest, obviously. And I said, well, no, no, no. Let's blame Stu. <laughs> because, <laughs> because he was the one who picked the haddock risotto for the pod. If it wasn't for him, we wouldn't have had uh, said fish skin in the first place. And ultimately, it will be funny for the podcast. So here we go. <laughs> I will take the heat for this. But I would also say in the future, if because I, I assume, did you put it all down for Mac, all the fish skin in one go? Or did you sample him down CBD to and leave the rest on the side? Uh, to be honest, I think I just sort of chucked it all in a bowl. Ah, because if you'd only done a little bit, what you can do, you can um, pan fry the fish skin to make it into crispy fish Crispy, crispy bits. Oh, that sounds good. So, okay. if, if, if listener, you ever have any leftover fish skin, fry it in a little bit of oil in the pan. Wait till it goes crispy, and it is delicious. This is why I like you, Stu. I present you with a problem, and you give me a solution. Excellent I mean, I, job. <laughs> it's 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 not a, it's not a solution now because if it's been sitting, obviously uh, now the fish has been removed from the car, and obviously I don't advise anyone does this with four day old rotting uh, fish <laughs> skin. I'm sure in some countries it is a delicacy. And I'm sure I'm down sure the years be. we will find it. Um, Possibly. I haven't been in the kitchen uh, that much this week. Obviously, I've cooked this week's uh, recipe, but it was my wife's birthday yesterday at the time of recording. And so we had, um, her friends had kindly ordered her an afternoon tea from the Ambrette in uh, Margate. The Ambrette's got a set of restaurants around uh, the Kent region where we're, where we're based. 
and it was an afternoon tea with sort of an Asian twist on it. So we had a scone, but it had things like mango cream. It had some form of chili jam on top of it with spices in it. We had samosas. Um, I just see, I, I, there was uh, obviously a classic uh, cheese and ham toasty element in there. But the, um, so it was chutneys, Kentish butter, clotted cream, and homemade seasonal jam. But this was the key one. So I had a chicken tikka sandwich. There was salmon and guacamole sandwich as well, ham and cheese. But in a sandwich, for the first time, I had Mumbai masala potato and cheese in a sandwich, slightly toasted. And I, I was like, potato in a sandwich? Anything's good with cheese. So I didn't have a gripe with that. Incredible. It was really, really tasty. That sounds good. Carb on carb as well. It's always always a fun combination, isn't it? I'm not going to lie. I didn't bother counting yesterday because carb loading, <laughs> I was carb loading for the pod. That's what that's the excuse I'm going with. Get your energy up. <laughs> and then in the afternoon, uh, we picked up my daughter from nursery early. But I went on a little detour because, again, due to time constraints, um, I wanted to make a birthday cake for my wife. But I thought, well, I've got a lovely little cake shop. Uh, where I'm based in Westgate-on-Sea, called uh, the Little Brown Fairy uh, Company. Little Brown Fairy Cupcake. They, uh, they've they appeared, it turns out, on Channel 5, on BBC, making fantastic cakes. And I asked if they'd make my wife a birthday cake based on our one of our destinations on honeymoon to Las Vegas. And um, we posted it on our Twitter, at that food podcast, and it was incredible. It was a Biscoff cake, chocolate icing on the inside, um, bases a poker table, all edible chips, edible money, edible cards. All the the uh, the bits were standing up on it were on a uh, yeah were edible, obviously other than the sticks to keep them stood up in the cake. And it was was very very good. So I would genuinely say if you're looking for a celebration cake, a wedding cake, um, give them a follow on Twitter. Um, it's at um, Little Brown Fair, um, F A I R. It was really good but obviously last night we had a little tea party uh, as well which involved sandwiches again so double sandwiching yesterday uh, sausage rolls corn dogs were on the menu volivants Ooh, very nice very, that sounds very nice. really good yeah i actually checked out um little brown fairy on twitter yesterday after you posted about it and some of their creations look absolutely fantastic and uh the cake that they made for leanne was brilliant now um i showed the picture to Amy yesterday and she was wondering um, if the money was edible as well because it looks so realistic that you'd think it's actually a real $20 note. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah, all, all edible, absolutely delicious. I did realise the small shortcoming in my ways though uh, slash deliberate mistake. Obviously, it's quite a massive cake and there are only three of us, technically four of you include Taffy the cat who does like the odd crumb of cake because he's, you know, a human cake. Human cake? He's a human cat. Maybe I should have got a taffy cake. That would have been incredible. That'll be next. <laughs> um, so Leanne's going to be dropping some off, the, so it's socially distant, posting it through the letterbox of her parents, leaving some on doorsteps of friends. And I, it is now, as we're recording this, it's about half past 10 in the morning. Um, I haven't eaten since about five o'clock yesterday, because I am still full. It's incredible. The the gluttony when i work out later this evening it's going to be hard going <laughs> it's going to be awful 
Well, you know where I live, Stu, and I'm assuming that it will be okay with uh, travel restrictions to drop me off some cake. Uh, I can't imagine anything with Biscoffin uh, tasting bad, so I am very much up for that. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, it's essential travel, because we can class this podcast as work, so we'll need to sample it. So I will do the round trip <laughs> to come and deliver some cake. But on the subject of cake making, and this leads us quite nicely into this week's food news. Um, so I've got a few uh, bits to go through today, but... One of the key ingredients people will use is sugar in their cooking. And obviously this has been, uh, this concept which we're going to go through has been around for a very, very long time. But it just seems to be, especially following lockdown, and hopefully we're going to be on our way out of it soon um, in the UK. um, We are finding more people did a lot of baking over the last 12 months. They bought their baking supplies. Banana bread seemed to become the, the big thing. But a lot of people are going to be going through their cupboards, doing a clear out post lockdown, and they'll start finding a lot of ingredients that they used in the early part of lockdown that they can't use anymore. And one of the things that people seem to be finding a lot of is bags of brown sugar. And they get all dried out and they get all clumpy. So um, a couple of people have started posting some basically avoiding wastage tips online. So if you've got, let's say, a bag of big bag of brown sugar and it's all dried out and clumpy there is a way to resurrect it to become usable sugar now personally i would normally just dig in a bigger spoon and it would be hard and i stir it in but if you don't want it if you want it for sprinkling or anything you put it in a container with a piece of bread bread a piece of bread and it then basically brings it back to life it absorbs everything out of it so the bit of bread if you leave it in there for a few uh, days the bread will draw out the moisture yep and then return your sugar to a soft and scoopable consistency ah that's interesting so the bread acts like a sponge and it takes all the moisture out ah that's very good very clever good tip that so then your then your uh then your sugar is ready to be used again as i said and and then it stops people throwing it out because remarkably it seems that if sugar gets hard, the number of people who just throw this out and waste it, like I said, if I've got hard sugar, I just still dig a spoon in, chuck it in whatever I'm cooking. It may not. Yeah, I would. It may not be easy to mix in if it's light and you know, granulated as you, you want it to be. But also, um, this trick works if you've got hardened cookies as well. So if you put your cookies in a sealed container with a bit of bread and they've gone hard, the softness should return if you do it with cookies as well. Uh, that's really interesting because obviously cookies is mostly sugar isn't it it's a, a circle of sugar really uh so that works as well that's fantastic and it's uh going back to a bit of food wastage and sustainability like we talked about in a couple of episodes ago um it's mad that people just throw that out isn't it as well when there's you know these little tricks and i know maybe they haven't got access to these tricks online or whatever but uh, so yeah no, it's really good really interesting so at least people doing that but then also another part of news which you'd um mentioned on on twitter to me um and as you know, we both love technology, especially if it's a food gadget, then you know, we're all in. But certain companies, it's becoming more and more popular to start maybe 3D printing food. Now, this is something you'd sent me um, another Isra- an Israeli company um, who had started producing, they're called uh, Redefine Meat. And this was in sort of 2018, this company started. And they had a very successful IPO, they raised a lot of money. But recently, um, there's another Israeli food tech company called Meat Tech 3D, who recently secured $7 million of funding in its first round for basically 3D bioprinted cultured meat products. Um, 
so basically they go through and they can create using these bio products vegan or vegetarian friendly meats they've been making steaks they've been making burgers and you can tell there must be huge business for this because like seven million dollars from a first round of funding for a relatively new tech is incredible so it's it's obviously a great opportunity so 3d printing it's becoming more prevalent within the food industry as the bioprinting technologies and materials continue to advance. So obviously we're not talking they're going to print something that's plastic. But the concept of 3D printing of cultured meats has been around for quite a while. And several firms, as we mentioned before, in sort of 2017, 2018, started doing this. So we've got a company in Spain, which is a bioengineering setup called Nova Meat, and they developed synthetic 3D printed a vegetarian steak which mimicked the texture of beef and chicken and also the one that you linked to me on twitter which redefined meat they made six million dollars and their first round of funding to again make these alternate steaks so these companies have now started sen- selling these 3d printed bits of food to restaurants quite high-end restaurants as well to get these vegan and vegetarian steaks and on the subject of you know, as we mentioned about carbon footprint, if you can get a steak that's printed through sort of biotech and eat it with such a low level of carbon footprint. Now, again, I haven't been able to find enough detail to research a carbon footprint of a printed steak. So obviously, I assume you've got to factor in the machinery uh, involved in this. But once this is in place and it can be tested to make sure one, you know, obviously it's proven to be safe and nutritious because obviously high-end restaurants wouldn't be purchasing these essentially printed steaks um i think it's just incredible how technology has evolved to potentially help reduce co2 emissions of the development of steak um and i'd be really interested to see what they're like in comparison to a traditional classic rump steak or a bit of sirloin versus a printed bit of meat yeah so i've tried um not 3D printed meat, but I have tried various uh, substitutes for meat, and I've never found one that one that agrees with me because I do have a slight issue with uh, too much soy um, going into my body, uh, which I have a bit of a bad reaction to. Um, but to just not quite tasting the same, so actually I'd rather just load my plate with vegetables rather than a fake substitute meat. Um, so it'd be really interesting to see if they can get the taste right as well and the texture. Um, do you know um, where the funding is coming from? Is it countries directly or is it big uh, big tech companies that want to get involved in looking at ways to be more sustainable? So basically for, um, for Meat Tech 3D, um, the investment was led by um, basically a company called uh, Sargot Provident and pension funds essentially from around the world. So a lot of this is from US investments at this moment in time because if someone can crack this and print essentially top quality steak, you know, their investment is going to be returned in, you know, droves. So, but I think it would be interesting to see, especially where more people, when they're making investments uh, for the future, they're investing in green energies, they're investing in green tech. So it'd be interesting to see if, especially in the UK, more investors start looking towards companies like this because obviously we've got them in Israel, we've got them in Spain. I'm not aware of anything like this in the UK. Mm-hmm. So hopefully, no, no. you know, I'd... if people have already, you know, 
it's probably quite a difficult market to get into because if you think that um, Redefined Meat have had $6 million put into it, Meat Tech 3D have had $7 million put into it. So already $13 million has gone into investing in printed meat. It's incredible. That's incredible. And I think I already know the answer to this, but would you try one? Oh, definitely. You'd have to. It'd be incredible. And if anyone from Nova Meat, uh, Meat Tech 3D, or Redefine Meat would like to send us any steaks to try, we will happily be guinea pigs. We'll happily be involved in any of these trials. Oh, Stu, I can't wait for the day when we get people send us food to try. Won't that be glorious? (laughs) (laughs) I'd need to work out a hell of a lot more. (laughs) We'll get your plan sorted. It's fine. And then, well, on the subject of eating more, um, obviously the next big event in the UK calendar is going to be Easter. So there's a lot to get excited about. We might be able to have barbecues in people's gardens for the bank holiday weekend if the British weather permits it to do it. But Cadbury have assisted us in celebrating Easter this year by launching an edible DIY project. So obviously bank holiday weekends, you want to get involved in building things? Don't worry this year. Cadbury have brought out an Easter cottage kit to allow you to build a house out of chocolate, chocolate blocks, chocolate buttons, mini eggs. It is incredible. You can get it. Uh, it won't be available in supermarkets, but you can buy it from Cadbury's Gifts Direct, and it's £16. So it allows you to build an Easter egg hut. So if you don't fancy an egg, fancy something to build yourself on Easter weekend, Cadbury's have got you sorted with an Easter egg. Build your own house. That sounds fun. We uh, once tried building a gingerbread house uh, a few Christmases ago. Uh, so on the box, it looks beautiful, really well done, and nicely iced and things like that. Um, <laughs> but have you seen that Simpsons episode where Homer makes the barbecue? Yeah. Uh, so he's, got the, he's, got, he's got the pitch on the box, and then he sort of draws back the camera, and then you see the effort that he made, and it's just an absolute disaster. That was like our gingerhead, uh, gingerbread house. <laughs> so, <laughs> So I might try it, but I can't uh, make any promises that it's going to be any good. Um, now, you've been uh, building quite a lot, uh, what with moving into a new home. You've been doing your uh, vegetable plots and things like that. So you should be a dab hand. I I just worry that if I've got to do any form of sort of like icing to keep it together, that with my daughter around, who at the moment the favourite thing of cooking is, can I lick the spoon or can I lick the bowl? I fear this wouldn't be constructed because, again, white chocolate buttons to give you like the uh, the guttering and the fascias of the house, little cho- white chocolate bunnies for the for the ceiling tiles and a pen to draw on windows. Mm. Oh. <laughs> I can imagine it's just going to be eaten relatively quickly. But yeah, a nice little thing to do as a family, something to build together. And also, if you're going to build the house together and share it together, potentially reduce your sugar intake. But, you know, it's Easter, so eat the whole thing yeah go wild have fun that sounds great and that concludes this week's food news <laughs> what a wonderful insert segment. jingle <laughs> <laughs> yeah. when we have budget <laughs> would you rather have a budget or would you rather have a 3d printed steak uh bring on the steak and other various three uh free foods <laughs> but in all seriousness on the, on the subject of a 3d printed food do you think this is a concept that would catch on do you think people would adopt a printed food diet uh i don't know because i'm in that realm where i am very interested in all this sorts of things um and it's not just the fact that it's better for 
animals potentially, but but the environment and climate change and carbon footprint, which are things I'm all very passionate about. Um, so from my point of view, you know, I would hope so. But there's you know still a large majority of people that aren't as switched onto that sort of stuff at the moment, and this is where you know governments and media outlets need to kind of press these issues more and kind of raise awareness of the uh, things that we're sort of approaching with all these worries that we have, what with climate change, etc. So um, I'd like to think so, but it would have to be a bit of a drive from, you know, government sources and things like that to get people behind it. I can just imagine like a McDonald's where if they could get a meat-based substitute and or a similar drive-through establishment and they could start printing their burgers in-house, the costs they would save and the logistics of getting everything from unit to unit. I mean, I wouldn't suggest that they'd print locally because, again, I think that would be quite an expense to get a 3D printer of that volume into um, into a local branch. But having a sort of a distribution centre, it, it would be... It'd be really interesting to see. So obviously the fact that people are embracing technology now for food preparation. I mean, obviously we've got our kitchen gadgets, but actually manufacturing edible produce from a printer, it, it's crazy. It's its incredible how technology has evolved and how it is in, in our world. And um, obviously another... Look at the professional link. I'm, I'm obviously going to point out the professionalism of this thing. And obviously a country who is quite big on technology is China. Yay! Good segue, <laughs> Stu. This is why you're the professional. <laughs> I've got my I've got my run sheet, and I'm hitting all the points. Um, so, as as Matt mentioned on uh, last week's episode, and and we'll elaborate more in a second. World Food Club, amongst sort of our social circles, seems to have been, you know, taking things by storm. I think it's been really, really good to see the amount of people who are just cooking from. I from scratch, we're getting some of these sort of meal kits like Gusto and Happy Fresh and things like that, just to really get involved and get in the culinary spirit of preparing from scratch. And I think it's really good for um, for people to experience these different flavors and these different cuisines and different um, traditions, uh, so to speak. And obviously, last week you picked China as our as our destination. We packed our digital passports, we got on our digital airplanes, and we took the long flight to Asia. Yes, we did. Uh, so I chose the uh, Ken Hom um, chicken chow mein dish. Uh, as I said last week, always been a big fan of chicken chow mein. So hopefully we're trying to replicate that flavour in our own home. So I personally have never visited China. It's not been anywhere I've been to. And I wasn't aware of you and Amy had been to China as of yet. Uh, we have not. Obviously, would be a very interesting country to visit. Uh, for various different reasons. Um, I understand your wife, Leanne, has. Yeah, so after university, my wife went uh, travelling and she spent a bit of time in China. So obviously, with a view to some interesting factoids about um, China, she gave me some of the following. A snack that tends to be enjoyed quite readily in China when she was there was a chicken's foot. So you could just pick up a pack of chicken's foot. Um, KFC is made of the whole chicken. 
So they put everything in, apparently. Now, again, I'm only going from her words. This has not been verified by an independent source. It's just my wife. They also have uh, something they eat called thousand-year eggs. Have you heard of these before? I have. Um, I can't remember the process of making them, but don't they come out like a black coloration? Go on, elaborate on that. Yeah, so essentially, uh, and how she described it, is that they bury eggs for a long period of time. They get, dis- <laughs> they get disgusting, they bring them out, and they eat them. And her last comment on that was, and it's not for me. <laughs> <laughs> so why wasn't it? Do you know why? Was it the flavour or the smell? Um, I, I think it was the. I think it was the triple threat. I think it was the right. appearance, the aroma, and then the taste. <laughs> yeah, I've never seen one in real life, but I've seen it on various like TV, food documentaries, and things like that. Um, it'd be quite the experience, wouldn't it? I, I'd certainly give it a go, but I might not go back for seconds. Yeah, it's it's, it's things like that, and then um, sort of in Iceland where they've got the the rotten shark, the fermented shark meat as well, where people go, that's disgusting, but you've got to give it a try because it's delicacy. And I wonder if some countries where there's a lot more tourism now, so like these thousand-year-old eggs, they go, you know what we're going to do? We're going to bury these and just tell travellers that this is what we eat. Morons, they've been in the ground for three years. <laughs> yeah, Amy and I are developing the uh, four-day fish skin. <laughs> <laughs> All you do is leave it in your car, let it sit. <laughs> but China has, has, been a, has always been a, a, an interesting country to me from, from the standpoint of how much you can actually find out as a, as a, as a reliable source but when it comes to food obviously it's second to none it's such a diverse market with so many different cultures because obviously the size of the country is you're going to have so many different regional variances and it's the sort of thing that if you're going to go on a food excursion going to sort of even some of the more obscure parts of china you know you're going to be in for an absolute treat from the food the only thing my wife did also advise for anyone who is going to be traveling to china uh, when it is safe to travel again in the future um and go on holiday and experience the um experience the culture and experience sort of be immersing yourself in the in chinese culture is be wary of salad because it seems that every time anyone in her group had salad there, um, they became unwell. So it's a case of just wash wash all your salad if you're going to eat it from fresh. So you, you can, can get um, chicken foot or whole KFC chicken or um, uh, an egg that's been buried for X amount of days. But mind the salad, people. <laughs> <laughs> Sound advice from the Miller family household. <laughs> so, did because obviously when you were doing your research in, into sort of some elements of China, what what from a food context, what 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 appeals to you about about the Chinese food palette and the the offerings available? Well, the um, the Asian it's more Japanese, I think, but the Asian kind of philosophy of unami, which is that kind of almost like a salty um, taste, which just leaves you feeling very satisfied after you've eaten. Um, I think that's something that interests me. Uh, we did a um, ramen noodle dish uh, last year, it was now, and that's when I started to 
you know, learn about the uh, theory of unami and, you know, making things very tasty and how you do that and how to achieve that. Um, I think I mentioned last week that the, the way that uh, restaurants achieve it now is uh, through using a additive called MSG. Um, but there are ways of doing it uh, more naturally. It does involve a lot of salts. It's not necessarily healthy, but just to get that kind of satisfying taste afterwards, um, that's something that quite... Uh, I find quite interesting. Um, the one of my favourite dishes uh, is Peking duck as well, which is just so happens to be the national dish of China, um, according to my research, at least anyway. Uh, so I did consider making that as part of the the recipe this week, but I thought it might be a bit too much to ask people to try. Um, but we certainly interested to try it uh, at some point independently, just to see if you can get that. Again, that sort of unami taste, that uh, authentic um, Asian Chinese taste. Do you have a steaming nest for doing the pancakes in? Uh, no, we don't. Um, so it would be a case of, again, it's kind of a bit of an investment, isn't it? So, you know, I, I don't mind spending a bit of money on these things because it's something I enjoy. Uh, and an, another reason why I didn't ask our listeners to try this one, um, because it is a bit of a overhead to get into it in the first place um but no i haven't have you uh, i haven't but it's one of the things i've been looking at and again just amplified more by doing this week's recipe because i'd like to again i, I like the idea of doing peking duck from home um and trying to replicate that flavor because even if you can't replicate the flavor you've got pancakes you've got duck you've got hoisin sauce it's going to be delicious whatever you do but i just like the idea of if i've got that steamer i want to try at some point to make steamed dumplings but I think Ooh. you won't be able to do it without the right kit. Yeah. Again, it's one of those things that um, almost going back to, you know, we're used to taking things out of packets or things that arrive at our tables already done. Um, it feels like it's potentially an achievable task, but, you know, all these things we can do at home and also just to see the process of that coming together uh, through your own work will be yeah, really interesting to see. It's what you touched on earlier. It's the satisfaction in doing so, achieving something. You've got to concentrate. You've got to really focus on things like that. Because I can imagine even doing the dumplings, even getting the the seal on 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 the outer dumpling, just to make sure none of your filling comes out. Especially in a steaming basket, you've invented invested pounds in. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's great to do it. And by going to these different cultures and having a look around, this week's recipe wasn't a challenge as such but it had more intrigue because as we mentioned on last week's uh episode it's it's trying to replicate that flavor you get from the chinese to see if you can and more importantly it, knowing exactly what goes into the dish yeah that's the interesting part isn't it see exactly what they asked you to put in and then see if that replicates the flavor um so from you were saying that, you know, China use various different um, ingredients and quite uh, exotic ingredients occasionally as well. Um, this links actually kind of potentially in a bit of a sad kind of way, but to some of the wildlife that China have as well. So I've been looking into wildlife uh, and habitat in China. Now, no surprise that China is big. So, would you take uh, care to take a guess at how big China is in square miles? Let's take a little stab. Oh, I, I wouldn't even want to hazard a guess because whatever way I go, it will be hideously wrong. Uh, 20,000 20, square miles. 
Okay, so so for some context, uh, the United Kingdom is ninety four thousand five hundred and thirty square miles. <laughs> I am hideously bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, however, China has a landmass of three point five million square miles. Which a little bit out then. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, isn't it? Um, they have a population of one point three billion people. Um, so as you can imagine, uh, with the large area um, and a diverse mix of habitats, um, you've got habitats such as forest and grassland to uh, deserts, mangroves and mountains. Uh, there is a wide range of animal species that exist in China, um, including crocodile, salamander, uh, leopard, uh, several types of monkey and four species of bear. So this includes the brown bear, uh, Asian black bear, sun bear, and arguably the superstar of the Chinese bear world, Stu. I hear they run an energy company. <laughs> <laughs> the That's panda. Right, the, the giant panda, yes. So the superstar of the Chinese bear world. Um, the giant panda is considered to be a national treasure in China and is uh, undoubtedly universally adored um, Pandas also bring sustainable economic benefits to many local communities through uh, ecotourism. So people coming from outside the country uh, to uh, go see pandas in wild habitats or even in collections, zoological collections, um, which is lovely. However, uh, in my opinion, uh, they have similar qualities to a Love Island contestant. Superficially attractive, but generally talentless. They are Useless, Stu. <laughs> I'm looking forward to watching Panda Love Island, though. <laughs> well, they're just going to be sleeping around and eating bamboo all day. It will literally be that. So let me give you some examples. The, uh, the panda has the gi- digestive system of a carnivore, but mo- almost exclusively eats plant matter in the form of, uh, you've already said it, but in the form of bamboo. Useless, Stu. <laughs> Their bodies aren't equipped to process all that high fibrous bamboo, and yet they still insist that they love the stuff. Useless. Stew. <laughs> In fact, they are so severely undersupplied with protein, fats, and other nutrients because of their diet that they lack the energy to do anything of any use, including mate. Useless stew. <laughs> and with a population of just 1,864 giant panda in the world, they need all the help they can get, and yet, quite often, they still refuse to breed, even in captive settings such as zoos, where they're literally next to each other. Stu, they are useless. Is this However, a segue into a blue chew ad? <laughs> <laughs> uh, new sponsors this week. No, not really. Um, However, fortunately, uh, thanks from help uh, from organisations such as the WWF, not that WWF, <laughs> <laughs> and the effort they go to in order to help protect the natural habitat of the natu- uh, of the giant panda, uh, they are no longer classified as endangered. Um, and as of 2016, they've been downgraded to vulnerable um, as the after their population increased by 17 percent. So it is a wildlife success story. So this is a happy ending, really. Um, giant pandas are actually what is known as a umbrella species. So this means through the protection they receive, other animals that live around them in the same habitat, such as golden monkey, crested ibis, and my favourite, the tarkin, 
which is an animal I used to look after when I worked at Port Lim Zoo, uh, they benefit too. Um, so through their them being there, uh, other animals can habitat uh, can benefit. So I'm sure we can all agree that is a plus point. Having said that, they can't even be bothered to grow a proper thumb to hold on to all of that bamboo they insist on eating. <laughs> Instead, they have what is known as a false thumb, which are actually uh, enlarged wrist bones. Um, you know, it's not like they've had eight million years to evolve a proper thumb, is it? <laughs> I mean, useless stew. I didn't know you had such heat with the pandas, but I didn't know about the thumbs. So that's really interesting that that just the evolution hasn't really hit the panda thumb yet. And also, I wasn't aware that they ha- were fully like carnivorous creatures. But you know, I suppose needs must. If there's a foolish person getting a bit too close, that they'll uh, go. Oh well, I've not had any bamboo. I will eat this trespasser. If they can be bothered, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think... Sorry, go ahead. No, well, so I was going to say, you know, so it's not all bad. You know, pandas do get me a bit riled up, but there is plus points as well. Um, And we all know that pandas love to eat bamboo, even though it's not particularly good for them. Um, But, you know, humans, we also eat weird food choices as well. And specifically... Uh, when it comes to our hosts today, China is known for eating unusual animals and using them for traditional medicines as well, which is undoubtedly a uh, bad deal for wildlife. Um, you know, this is a light-hearted podcast, so I'm not going to get too far into this and keep this fairly brief. But just with my background in wildlife conservation and animal care, uh, I thought it would be a bit of a, a miss of me not to uh, mention this. But um, And also, this has obviously had an effect on human population too, um, what with the impact of the zoonotic disease uh, coronavirus has had on all our lives since March 2020. Um, And with the news this week as well that bird flu uh, H5N8 has uh, transmitted from a uh, farm chicken to humans for the first time that happened in Russia. Did you hear about that, Stu? Uh, I've been following some of the the bird flu bits because my mother, who has chickens, has once again been forced to quarantine her birds for a prolonged period of time again for the last couple of years. So they've been time fits and starts of just got to keep them all in their in their coop. So it's yeah, it's interesting times. Yeah, and that's right. That's the correct thing to do. So if you do keep birds at home, make sure they are quarantined um, and preventing the uh, the risk of spread of the disease. Um, but you know. Uh, with this in mind, it is perhaps time for us to rethink our relationship um, with wild and farmed animals um, in how we interact with them, i.e. you know, stop encroaching on their natural habitats. The further we sort of press into their habitats, the more likely we are to be able to pick up some of their diseases that they carry, which uh, you know, has been proven recently that's uh, you know, extremely detrimental to our livelihood. Um, and, you know, but the good news is... Um, that in October of last year, uh, largely in response to COVID-19 outbreak, China have introduced stricter legislation uh, to give endangered species such as uh, the pangolin uh, great protection. So the pangolin, the scales are quite often used in soups. I think other body parts are used for medicine as well. And whilst the legislation certainly isn't perfect yet, there are loopholes which can you know allow people to slip through the net, if you like. Um, it is a huge step in the right direction, so we are hopefully going the right way. Yeah, pro- progress is certainly needed, and especially for a country 
like China and, and their history and how how their lawmaking goes through, so that any change is going to be a positive step forward. And as you said, we've seen how much impact, certainly in the most dra- dramatic of situations since we've had since 2020, of encroaching in their habitats. And if this if this isn't a warning to people around the world of what can potentially happen. And as you said, with with which was which was originally was it H one N one, which was the first type of bird strain of bird flu in the early two thousands, where we're now sort of the next strain of it going through. Mm-hmm. Yep. Other other creatures, other people who we share the planet with, evolve as well. Other elements evolve, so we just need to be a little bit more considerate. And as you said, it just takes something like this. It shouldn't have taken something as as detrimental and such, you know, life changing a life-altering event as COVID-19 to make people do this. But if there are going to be anything that people can take out of it, hopefully it's just going to be one, you know, our own lifestyles and where we go from there. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I hope this does wake us up a little bit and we can make improvements and it still exists uh, in coexistence with animals in a productive and happy way. And um, speaking of chicken... Oh, yes, yes. Here comes the professionalism. <laughs> this is what we like. That's my segue. Speaking of chicken, chicken chow mein stew. How did you get on this week? Um, so I was very excited to uh, make this, as we said earlier, just to see if we could try and replicate it. Um, it was quite a long list of ingredients, but quite a lot I already had in the house. I did have to go and find my Shaoxing rice wine, which I found from my local supermarket, so that wasn't too bad to get that in. And also, I didn't have any white pepper in stock i've never cooked with white pepper before so i got some of that in for everything um i went with fresh egg noodles when i was cooking mine and i looked at the recipe and i thought serves four and i looked at the size of what was in place here and i thought that's not going to serve four people so i wondered is this supposed to be down as a side dish as an accompaniment to another dish but i cooked it as a main um Unfortunately, Harriet was very anti trying anything else, so I had to sort of make two side by side uh, for this. Um, again, not overly time consuming. Doing the prep, marinating the chicken, finding the ingredients, nothing was out of the ordinary. I didn't need any special equipment. I obviously had my wok to cook everything. I did Harriet's separate portion in a frying pan, which was essentially chicken noodle bacon with some mange to chopped into it um but yeah i thought shredding the chicken or essentially cutting into the shredding it pre-cooking was was uh, i know it's gonna sound stupid that was new to me because normally i would cook my chicken breast and i would shred it afterwards with a fork rather than dicing shredding finely before frying it in with the chow mein um and sesame oil only in the last couple of years i've realized how how important sesame oil is into asian cooking so it's really, really nice that I've already had a nice quality one of those, that already in my cupboard to go. But um, yeah, preparation-wise, it was very simple. I wasn't expecting prosciutto to be uh, an element uh, uh, or any form of cooked ham to be an element in it, but it worked quite nicely. It really added t- to it. So um, yeah, how did you get on with your cooking of this? I I chose not to use the ham. Um after watching a uh, Netflix documentary called What the Health, uh, where they sort of do a bit of an expose on the industry and um, how it links to disease. Um, so I'm kind of off processed food and processed meat at the moment. Um, so I chose not to. 
um, with the uh, Shoshing, I'm going to completely butcher that now, Shoshing rice wine, um, I couldn't find any at all. So I actually um, fortunately had a bottle of sherry from probably Christmas 2016 in the back of the cupboard. Um, so I just chucked that in there and it was fine. No one died. <laughs> <laughs> Did you put um, like a that with a bit of bread to re- resurrect the flavour? well if i'd only listened to food in the news i could have done um so no i I, it's absolutely fine um stuck that in uh with the sesame oil as well very good point actually that is so essential in chinese cooking um when i i've made um egg fried rice as well from from scratch uh to go with the dish because Amy and I made a bit of a, an occasion of it. So this was our full-on uh, World Food Club. We had uh, sides. Um, we had Chinese music on in the background. We even had a Chinese beer, uh, Singtao beer. Um, so we made a bit of an occasion of it. I made egg fried rice. Again, the sesame oil is involved in that. And it has a really like, quite unique, strong flavor, um, which I think really adds to that Chinese, that taste, that authentic taste that we've talked about. Um but yeah, no, no problem really. Uh, white pepper, I had to go out and buy. I've never used white pepper before in cooking. And again, I, you know, assumably that kind of goes towards achieving that authentic taste. Um, what I did do, and I kind of wish I didn't now, I added um, some chilies, so some fresh chilies into the dish. Amy and I we quite like a bit of spice. Um, and in all honesty, it, it ruined the, the flavors that were kind of subtly sitting underneath. Um, and I could taste the authentic uh, chow mein taste underneath, but ultimately the chilies kind of blew that out of the water um, and kind of overpowered it slightly. So what I will do, and I know we'll get towards this towards the end anyway, but I will make this dish again, but I think probably just uh, exclude the chilies on this occasion. Um, so for you, how was it to eat, Stu? You mentioned that Harriet wasn't keen on it, so what was her uh, distraction dish this week as well? I'd like to know about that. <laughs> Oh, well, I, I made this side by side with essentially, again, chicken noodles. So I took some of the ingredients which are on this into a separate wok to make her her own portion without any of the sauces. So it could be split down. So she tried some originally of, of the one with the sauce, didn't like it. So I replaced it with the one which was no sauce because I, I thought after taking the through sampling uh, and tasting as I go, um, as you said, you had the authentic flavor. But for me... I think having the white pepper in, so obviously I had white pepper in the marinade and you had white pepper in the main sort of ingredients of it. I did find it to be very overpowering, the white pepper. So obviously, whereas you said you obviously had the chili and it obviously had a big more of a punch and took away from some of the flavours. I do wonder how much of that was the white pepper. So I wonder when you cook it again and if you don't use chilies in it, if you're going to get sort of the same thing. Um, So again, flavour-wise and the aroma of it when cooking... It was like nothing else I'd cooked from a chow mein sort of style. Because obviously people do stir fries. They pour in the stir fry sauces. It's, it's, all, it's all good. But the smell was brilliant. It smelled amazing. Um, but from my standpoint, I think the white pepper gave it quite a lot of heat to it anyway. Um, so it was, a, it again, sort of distracted away from what from the, the sesame oil element of it and obviously the mixture of the dip, the light and the dark soy and the shouting, um rice wine in there as well. But it 
the flavors worked. I said, from my standpoint, having the prosciutto in there, giving it sort of a different um, flavor, different texture, having the shredded chicken in there was was nice. I would definitely cook it again, but I think I'd try and delve into doing a little bit less of the um, the white pepper just to see if that gives it a little bit, makes it a little bit less heat, takes and gives me a little bit more of the uh, the Asian flavors. But I enjoyed cooking it. I think it was very tasty. I'd say not overly complicated to do. You just got to make sure you get your timings right because you've got to take a lot out of the pan, wipe the pan, reuse the pan, and put it all in. But again, that saves on the washing up. So we're all a fan of that. Yeah, and going back to your comment on the smells as well, I actually, um, after almost 15 years of Hertz stew, this week I finally redeemed my university rib cooking failure. Um, you might remember we uh, me telling you about uh, on our intro podcast about the time at university when I somehow managed to foul up a uh, rack of ribs. It was a heartbreaking moment for all involved and all listeners. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was. It's uh, stayed with me for a long time. However... This week, I managed to redeem myself there uh, by making a um, Chinese-style, slow-cooked uh, sticky pork ribs courtesy of a Jamie Oliver recipe. Oh, and they good. were so nice. They were really, really nice. So we cooked them for, we covered them in spices. Um, so that would be Chinese five spice uh, plus some oil. And then you slow-cook them in the oven for three hours. Um, uh, whilst you're doing that, you make a... Um, you make a sauce, uh, marinade, sorry, to go with them, um, which includes hoisin sauce, uh, uh, star anise, um, more uh, five spice, uh, various other things as well. Um, I think there's a little bit of brown sugar in there to give them a bit of a sweet tang as well. Um, and then you, once they've cooked for three hours in the oven um, in tinfoil, they come out nice and crumbly soft meat. And then you cover them with the marinade and then you stick them back in the oven, cook them again for about eight minutes, uh, just to kind of absorb more of the flavor from the marinade. Um, and then you can take them out and brush them again with the marinade, stick them back in for a minute. And they came tasting, came out tasting fantastic in a way. And uh, it's a bit of a faff, I suppose, but in a way I wish I kind of picked this one for this <laughs> dish because I wanted to share the taste with you and our listeners as well. Um, but if you do get the chance, if you jump onto my Twitter account, um, at Coach Wicked, I have put a picture up, which pitch doesn't do it justice in all honesty, um, along with the recipe as well. So if you do fancy giving this a try, uh, if you do uh, do the chow mein dish in the future, or if you just fancy a Chinese night, certainly recommend trying these ribs. Um, with respect to would I cook this dish again, it was much more than a rubbish stir fry stew, which is something you mentioned last week. Um, f- from my point of view, uh, it, there was authentic taste without using the, the, the cheating method of using MSG perhaps, um, but I certainly wouldn't use any chilies. However, I'd be intrigued to, um, to see if uh, maybe the white pepper would also be a bit overpowering. Maybe the combination of both um, uh, made it a bit too, bit too spicy for my palate, even for my palate. However, I will say, Amy loved it because she can handle her spice much better than I can. <laughs> <laughs> I think from this standpoint as well, with regards to a fake takeaway or a fake away, it seems to be sort of the common term for it now. Mm. I worked out for me, like a delivery from a Chinese restaurant may take 45 minutes to an hour. I cooked this in that time for a fraction of the price of a Chinese and it, and it made a, a big difference but obviously, from my standpoint, I was quite hungry 
afterwards. Because if you're thinking you've got 100 grams of chicken split between four, 225 grams of noodles split between four if, if you follow the recipe serving. So I get the impression this would be made as an accompaniment like you had. It would be part of a, a broader spread rather than just doing this for a main meal. That being said, the the dressing the the marinade for the chicken was worked really really nicely very really happy with that and i would certainly cook again but i think i'd increase the size of noodles more chicken in there maybe a bit more veg as well because i think just having 50 grams of monge two in there to divide by four people wasn't i i quite like some vegetables in my in my stir fry as well mainly just to pad it out um because i'm very greedy <laughs> just um before we move on to our Chinese Zodiac horoscopes. Did you look at the um, the calories in this dish by any chance? Just saying, you know, how you didn't feel particularly uh, sustained afterwards. So I wasn't overly full from it. And according to the nutritional facts per serving, so assuming this was divided by four, it'd be 399 calories per serving, of which uh, 18 grams would be salt, 4.1 grams would be carbs, 18 grams protein, 4.2 grams salt. So yeah, 18 grams fat, 4.2 grams salt. So obviously, it's going to be quite a salty dish because you're using various different types of soy. 400 calories for a side dish, potentially. So it's quite calorific. Yeah, that's true. Um, I would potentially have this on an evening um, after 5pm, just as it is kind of thing for our tea. Um, but yeah, once you add in the additional things that we had certainly uh what the prawn toast we had and the ribs and uh prawn crackers as well etc then yeah oh and don't forget the beer <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the calories start to uh rack up um it's true so successful uh mission to make our fake away this week um really fantastic recipe from ken hom if you haven't tried it yet give it a go Again, bear in mind that you might need to uh, add a few additions if you're looking to create a larger meal for it. Um, but overall, another great recipe. Now, before we finish today's uh, podcast and we get into what we're going to be making this week, I thought we'd have a little bit of fun looking at our Chinese horoscope stew. Um, obviously, this uh, this month we have celebrated the Chinese New Year um, and lots of countries across the world with a high population of um, Chinese people. They celebrate Chinese New Year, um, including the UK. Uh, so I thought I'd look at our horoscopes. How's that sound? Oh, I'm looking forward to seeing what the year has in store for me. So, um, as of 12th February 2021, uh, and this goes through to Tuesday the 1st of 2022, uh, this is the year of the ox. So it's the year of the ox in the Zodiac calendar of China. Um, the ox is honest and earnest. Uh, they are low-key and never look to praise or look for praise uh, or to be center of attention. Uh, this often hides their talent, but they gain recognition through their hard work. So I looked at what our zodiac animals would be. Um, I start with mine. I'm a rat, uh, which I mentioned last week. Uh, so uh, my lucky numbers are two and three. My lucky colors are blue, gold, and green. Um, my personality and characteristics are that I'm optimistic, energetic. Uh, people born in rat year are likable by all. Uh, their personality is kind, uh, 
but due to weak communication skills, their words may seem impolite and rude. So, Stu, if I've ever upset you with anything <laughs> I've said, I can blame the rat. <laughs> <laughs> and does this mean now, if we ever wrestle again, that you're going to start updating your wrestling gear colours? <laughs> yes, uh, I think blue, gold and green would go quite well. I could make that work, pull that off. I mean, you wear gold in the ring anyway, right? So gold standard <laughs> <laughs> okay so then i thought i'd look at yours as well um um you are Stu. do you have any idea did you look this up during a week i did not i'm waiting for the surprise okay you are a pig brilliant my friend <laughs> <laughs> that, well no say no more nailed it <laughs> um your lucky numbers are two five and eight your lucky colors are yellow gray and brown um, your personality and characteristics. Uh, pigs might st- not stand out in a crowd, but they are very realistic. Um, obviously, you never stand out in a crowd. Uh, for those that don't know some about that background, we are involved in pro wrestling as well. And Stu has the most flamboyant entrance that I've ever seen <laughs> with uh, orange um, feather boas and gold tight trunks and uh, streamers that he chucks up in the air. So... Certainly, this might be a little bit off. <laughs> um, you forgot the confetti also... cannons. <laughs> oh, sorry, confetti cannons as well. It doesn't stop there. Um, however, others, maybe all talk and no action, pigs are the opposite. Being able to hold solid objects in their hands, give them security, whatever that means. <laughs> I've been holding a pen for this whole whole podcast to show them I've got such security by holding my pen. Good. I'm glad it's just the pen. Um, so <laughs> I thought I'd look into. Brilliant. <laughs> I thought... Then I thought I'd look at our um, yearly projections or our year projection for 2021 based on our uh, animals. So uh, again, I'm uh, the rat in a year of the ox. Um, so 2021 will be a promising year for the rat, as the rat and the ox are known for their great compatibility. Uh, funnily enough, my, my wife, uh, her star sign is an ox as well, so obviously that's meant to be. Uh, <laughs> the ox will bring you a sense of confidence and optimism, and you will feel more at ease navigating social interactions. Uh, you will feel eager to put more effort into your career and education. You may still experience challenges, however, an influx of opportunities may cause you to suffer from stress and anxiety. Uh, keep an eye on your health and find a time to relax in your busy schedule. The rat will shine this year, so seize every opportunity to enjoy the ride. Oh, marvellous. Well, that sounds like a very prosperous year for you until March 2022. It's, <laughs> it sounds all right, and then it all goes downhill. Um, okay, so let's look at yours then. So uh, the year of the ox will be uh, a stable one for the pig. You will not encounter any major troubles and your overall fortunes will be average. Ah, Mm. crap. (laughs) (laughs) Not good, not bad, average. Um, What your year will look like largely depends on what you make of it. You can either keep the peace at home and work or you can push yourself out of your comfort zone and take on more challenges. Either way, you will experience a stable atmosphere. Make, making this will be a great period to establish your long-term plans for the future. So, Stu, the upshot is you can do whatever you want and it'll be fine. Delightful. 
Well, unlike the Year of the Ox, we do like praise and we do seek it. So if you like what you've heard so far on your podcast app of preference, leave us a five-star review. Make sure you uh, you don't have to write anything. Just mark it as five stars. It helps us in our algorithms and it helps more people follow us, especially, again, looking at our stats. Um looking at our lovely listenership in the uh, the northeast corner of the united states thank you very much to all our friends in ohio michigan virginia who are all listening to us as well obviously our uk fan base and also those of you who are listening in ireland croatia japan and further afield so thank you if you've joined us and thank you as well if you've cooked along with us so far which leads us on to uh this week's recipe now it's interesting that you had mentioned nigella at the start of the uh, the pod, and it's lovely that she interacted with us, and I'm hoping she may interact with us again, because before she'd even tweeted you about your butterscotch, I had found a Nigella recipe for something I've, I've heard about, I've never tasted, I've never cooked. And so far, we've been cooking dinners. But this week, we are going to be cooking a cake. And Ooh. Oh, yes. And now, I should probably sort of... Uh, preempt this by saying that my kitchen skills are good but my baking skills are not as good as my my savory skills are better than my sweet skills but i always remember hearing for of a recipe of something called a pineapple upside down cake (laughs) they're they're notoriously hard aren't they (laughs) (laughs) so i thought i'd challenge us a little bit um, I have a whole history, but we've gone quite long this week, so I'll go into the history of the pineapple upside down cake uh, next week. But we're going to post it on our Twitter feed at that food podcast, and we are going to be making a pineapple upside down cake. And for our um, our listeners in the United States, uh, the recipe I'm going to post also has a toggle on it, so instead of using metric, you can use cup sizes as well. So I wanted to make sure that um, I think Nigella does this quite a lot of her recipes. This is from her book in 2007 called Nigella Express. And we are going to be making pineapple upside down cake, which is ridiculous because I hate cherries, but they're in the cake. So I'm going to put them in because that's the rules. I'm really looking forward to this, uh, Stu. So I I like making cake. Um, What people listening won't know is that I make little notes as we talk here. So I've got a little pad of paper and a pen and I'll make notes. And my note on this one was in capital letters, cake exclamation mark happy smiley face (laughs) i think that says it all so i'm really looking forward to this one um and again hopefully we can get some interaction with uh the lovely nigella exactly so we'll be cooking nigella's pineapple upside down cake um we'll look into the history of the cake um but for those of you, because uh, obviously it's going to be too vast to go through the entire um, of America's where through my research, the pineapple upside down cake was uh, essentially created. But I will drill down into the main region uh, for a bit more research. So we'll start looking at food and that part of the United States. I think by for what I've read so far, it might be D.C. But again, I'll do a little bit more look into that prior to next week's podcast. Um, so again, that draws to an end. If you've cooked with us so far, thank you so much. If you've recently found our podcast go back and listen to our previous episodes you know we're only a new podcast you can go back and have a look in our archives uh, just search down or you can find everything on podbean just search that food podcast uh, you can find me on twitter i'm at the Stuart miller um where can people find you on social media uh yeah so i'm on twitter uh, under at coach wicked based on my um coaching and wrestling background go check that out 
Uh, I mostly post about food now, so you won't be disappointed if you like food. And the best place to interact with the podcast on Twitter is at that food podcast. Um, show us the pictures of what you've cooked. It doesn't have to be the recipes we've made. We're just happy to see what you guys cook. If you're enjoying what we do, tell a friend, leave us a review, and we look forward to seeing you all next week with some pineapple upside down cake. See you next week. Thanks, guys. Bye.